you would take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> Isaiah 6, we're taking a, a break from Genesis this Sunday to um, uh, want to preach a sermon sort of befitting the, the service this morning, although you will not be witnessing this part of the service because it will be happening the second service. We're ordaining and installing new officers, elders and deacons at the 11 o'clock service. So this the sermon sort of has that in mind, uh, a, a charge, if you will, not just to the elders and deacons of our church, but I trust, as you will see the, in the application of the sermon, this is really a, a sense of commissioning to all of us. Uh, yes, Isaiah is unique. He's a prophet. Not all of us are prophets, of course, but all of us are Christians, and we are, have all been called into mission in some way and in some capacity. Uh, the task for you is to realize where God has called you to be on mission. Uh, for some of us, He's called us to be vocational pastors. Uh, some of you, He's called you into different vocations, but that is your mission. Uh, are we fulfilling that mission? Uh, that, that, in part, is the sermon this morning. Isaiah chapter 6 likely is a, is a, a passage that you know. It's where one of the, the, the proof texts, if you will, for our holy, holy, holy song that we sang uh, this is what the seraphim of sort of chanting back and forth in the passage I'll read in a minute. But called by God, this is, this is Isaiah's commissioning service into the ministry. He's confronted by the holiness of God, he's cleansed by the grace of God, and then he's commissioned into the service of God. And so I want to spend the majority of the time on that final point, but that's, that's what is going on in our passage today. Let me read for us Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, and like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains, when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, would you teach us now from your word that we would behold wondrous things from it, that you would remind us, O oh Lord, that you are holy, perfect, and good, and, and right in all that you do and all that you are. 
And the only way for us to approach you is if we are saved by your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you send us forth from here with full knowledge of what you want for us, obedience and faithfulness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever met someone famous before? Or like a really famous person, and and maybe you have a funny story as a result of meeting that person. Maybe you fumbled over your words or acted a fool. Uh, This is a hero of sorts, and and you'd always wanted to meet this person and didn't quite go the way you wanted it to go. Well, I have such a story. When I was in college, a senior in college to be exact. Now, for some of you, you know, this, this fame, fame, of course, is relative. You may have no idea who these two people are, but they are famous in my world anyhow. I got the opportunity to be an intern for College Game Day. College Game Day is a show that comes on every Saturday morning at the site of what ESPN believes to be the great game of the day. And in 2004, College Game Day came to Knoxville for the Tennessee-Auburn game. Unfortunately, we got absolutely smashed in the game, but that's another story for another time. I, someone from ESPN came down to our fraternity house and said, hey, would one of you guys like to be an intern for the weekend? So starting Thursday afternoon through all day Saturday, I was an intern for College Game Day. A really, really cool experience. I have lots of fun stories that I don't have time to tell. Here's one. The cast, of course, are the famous people. It's Lee Corso, Kirk Herbstreet, and the host at that time, though he is no more, it was Chris Fowler. And so Thursday, I get there and I help them set up the set, which was just outside of Thompson Bowling Arena, the basketball arena there. And on Friday, all of, all of the, the cast and the crew, they, they arrive. That morning, we helped set up some hospitality rooms inside Thompson Bowling Arena where the, the cast would have refreshments, they do their production meetings and more. And on Friday, one member of the ESPN crew said, Andy, will you escort Chris Fowle and Kirk Herbstreet up some set of elevators onto the set where they're going to shoot some promos and things for, the, for college game day the following day? I said, sure. I'm completely starstruck at this point. Again, fame is relative. You might not know who these people are, but think of a famous person you'd like to meet one day, and maybe you're, you kind of are in my shoes. They were going to shoot a spot on one of Tennessee's great players at the time named Jesse Mahalona. He was a defensive tackle for Tennessee. And Herb Street, as the three of us are walking to this bank of elevators, is saying Mahalona over and over and over again so that he will say it and pronounce it correctly when they shoot this television spot. And so we get on the elevator. Here I am trying to not sort of geek out, okay, and the two of them on the other side of the elevator and finally, Kirk Herbstreet looks at me after saying this last name over and over again. He said, so what do you think about Jesse Mahalona? I completely froze. I said, uh, who's Jesse Mahalona? Just I, someone who at the time prided themselves on knowing the players and the statistics. And of course I would know who one of Tennessee's best players is. I completely froze, not knowing what to say. Just, oh. And they both kind of looked at me laughing, understanding what was going on. You know, I was sort of starstruck. And about two seconds later, all the information I knew of the player comes flooding back into my mind. But, of course, the moment is gone. There's no point in saying anything at that point. So I walk up onto the set. I sort of deliver them, as it were. And who is standing there when I come up to the set but Charles Barkley, 
So I get to meet another famous person, and he and I would actually get in an argument at that point about who the greatest NBA basketball player was, but of course that's another conversation for another time as well. Have you ever met someone famous? Maybe you fumbled over your words like I did, you said something silly, or maybe you just stood there dumbfounded. The experience that Isaiah has in this passage, of course, is something altogether different than that. It wasn't just the nervousness of meeting a hero, it wasn't just standing there in awe at someone who felt to you as larger than life. He had come face to face with the glory of the God of the universe. And it wasn't a pleasant experience. It's not something he could, oh, I can't wait to go and tell my friends what just happened to me. No, he is completely undone. He pronounces a curse on himself when he says, woe is me. It's an experience that he no doubt would never forget, yet at the same time was not something that was fun in any way. Yet it was what God used to remind him of who he was, who God was, who Isaiah was in light of who God was, and used that experience to call him into the ministry. There was an order there that I think is necessary for us to see. And so the answer that Isaiah gives, while we can be amazed that he would say, here I am, send me, is also the answer that every Christian must give to that very question. There is a need, here I am, send me. There is there's something that the kingdom of God needs, here I am, send me. I who know of what I was as a sinful, filthy, tainted person, unclean, cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ himself, so here I am, send me. Show me, O Lord, where you want me to go and to serve and to love and to care for others. So three things I want us to see from this passage. One is how Isaiah is confronted by the holiness of God, cleansed by the grace of God, and then commissioned into the service of God. And it is the pathway that every Christian must follow. It's, Isaiah is a representative of Israel here, showing them what they must do, yet unfortunately they do not. You see, their problem is they had been trusting in man and trusting in their prosperity. The opening of the passage says that King Uzziah had died. That, that is a contextual point, but it's more than that. It's the king whom they had loved. He'd been the king for 52 years. He's dead, and nobody knows what to do. They don't know what to do now. How do we continue on without our beloved king? Uzziah, uh, unfortunately, uh, he had a great beginning in the majority of his kingship, but at the end, everything went off the rails, as it sometimes does. He, he goes into the, the temple, he offers incense, which that's a big no-no even for the king. God strikes him with leprosy, and he lives in seclusion the remainder of his life. What are we going to do now that our great king is dead? And it's into that that God gives Isaiah this vision. He sees the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. In other words, Isaiah, Israel, you, nothing's changed, really. God is on the throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. I'm going to stop on a couple places and examine the language that's used. Here's one of those places. You sort of, the, the train of the robe filled the temple. Just the train. So imagine how great and huge the throne was and the person seated on the throne. All we can really see is the train itself. 
I think what Isaiah is communicating here is words really fail to describe what I see. I'm doing my best to tell you what I see. And I, it, it's almost like I'm, I, I, I'm trying to explain this and this is all I can communicate, right? This happens a lot in Revelation, doesn't it? It's, I'm, I'm doing, it's so great and majestic, I'll, I'm doing my best to explain it to you. According to John, in John chapter 12, what Isaiah saw was Jesus' glory. He was the one. It's the second person of the Trinity there on the throne. The vision of God produces in Isaiah not excitement, but terror. Woe is me. I'm utterly ruined. I see just how unclean I really am. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people, he says, of unclean lips. This is an amazing experience, but I think we can be glad it was Isaiah and not us. He is unclean, and he understands just how deep it actually is. He may have been better by comparison than the rest of, his, of the Israelites, but at this moment, that didn't matter. It's the, di- it's the distinction and the difference between he and God, between the holiness and righteousness he's trying to have and that which is righteousness in its purest form. Holy, 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 the seraphim are chanting back and forth. The holiness of God is much more than just the fact that he is sinless. Here's what A.W. Tozer says. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing of the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire wisdom, but his holiness, he cannot even imagine that. That's right. Holy, holy, holy. As I often remind you, repetition is important in the Bible. It's, it, it's, it means something's really important, so pay attention to it. Or it's, it's taking a concept and elevating it to its highest degree which I believe is what's happening here. God is holy. And these seraphim are making sure no one forgets that. As they're covering their face with one set of wings, because they can't look on God's glory, they're covering their feet with another set of wings, which as one commentator suggested, they're trying to sort of cover all of themselves. And then with another set of wings, they're flying. They're, They're ready to do what they're told in the moment. And they're all standing before a holy God. He is perfect. Or as one commentator said, the holiness of God is the godness of God. It's everything that makes God God and us not God. That's his holiness. And Isaiah is alarmed by what he sees. He's reminded of how deeply unclean he is. But he's also understanding more of himself and then more of God, which, as John Calvin says, is so important for the Christian. The more we know of God, the more we unreservedly must trust Him, he says. Isaiah is being prepared for something, but the appropriate starting point is just how unworthy he is for the task. I'm I'm calling you to be a prophet, Isaiah, not because there's something unique or special about you, I'm calling you, Westminster Presbyterian Church, to be my servants, to be on mission in this world, 
not because you're unique or adequate or, or worthy for this task. In fact, you most certainly are unworthy for this task. And you need to know that. You need to be convinced of that. The elders and deacons we're going to ordain and install in the second service are not worthy of this calling upon their life. They're unworthy for the task. But that's exactly what God wants is those that know that are convinced of this unworthiness before Him. But He doesn't leave us there, does He? He doesn't leave us in the despair of the unworthiness. He cleanses us. He cleanses us of that unrighteousness and prepares us for this task. God always begins this way with His servants, whether He's going to call you to be a preacher, whether He's going to call you onto the mission field, or whether He's going to call you to be a Sunday school teacher or a parent or a business owner, whatever it is, He means to begin with your unworthiness. But again, He doesn't leave you there. Secondly, we see in Isaiah, He is cleansed. Not by His own efforts, mind you. Not by something He asked for, but by the graciousness of God. One of the seraphim, they have some tongs in their wing, I guess, and flies over there, grabs a hot coal off the altar, and puts it right onto Isaiah's lips. That's, I think, obvious, isn't it, from the text? I'm a man of unclean lips living amongst us. Okay, I've got to cleanse my mouth. He's going to be a prophet who speaks God's word. It's all sort of linked together here. But it's where does the coal come from? It comes from the altar, doesn't it? It comes from the place where atonement has been offered through a sacrifice, Sacrifice offered, now from that place of sacrifice comes cleansing. It's pointing us to the cross, isn't it? That particular sacrifice is where we are cleansed, is where our guilt is taken away. It's where mercy is extended unto us. It's only after Isaiah confessed his sins that the word of forgiveness and the act of forgiveness was given and offered unto him. He knows he's unworthy, but now all that guilt and all that filthiness has been taken away. He's cleansed from all unrighteousness, not by something he did, but by something that had been done for him. Now he's ready. Not by anything he's done, of course, but he's ready to do this work for God because of the confrontation and now because of the cleansing. If we only ever experience the fear of God without mercy, then this vision would, it would cause us to be undone. It, we, would, we would fall into despair from which we could not return from. If we only know of His mercy and not of the fear of His holiness, then how do we really appreciate the sacrifice? It has to, it's got to be both. We've got to see equal parts, holiness and sinfulness and the cleansing power of the sacrifice of God. And that leads us finally to commission. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? There's another place to stop and examine the language there. Whom shall I send, who will go for us? Right? There's a a pronoun change here. It could be Israel, though I think that's unlikely. Who will go for us? It's God says this. This is Trinitarian language, isn't it? It's who will go on behalf of the Godhead to these people who currently do not know and do not appreciate who God is. 
here I am, send me. It is the response. Now, now keep in mind, Isaiah doesn't know what he's being called to do yet. God was about to give him the job description, which is not a fun job description at all, but he agrees to do it before he even knows exactly the way he's going to be deployed. It is our response, Westminster. I will go. Whatever it is, I will go and do it. Show me, Lord, the ways and the places and the people that you want me to go unto to Tell them also about your holiness, to tell them also about the sacrifice offered for them if they would repent and believe in it. It's not just the call of the vocational minister. It's the call of every Christian. Who will go for us? I will, God. I will go. Show me where. Show me how. Please. How can we say anything other than that? How, can we, how could the response be anything other than that for those of us who know we have been redeemed? There's no other response. Isaiah hears God's call, and now God tells him what he wants him to do. I want you to go and preach, Isaiah, but they're not going to listen to you. In fact, not just that they're not going to listen to you. In fact, the message that you bring is is going to repel them from me. It's going to harden their hearts. This is an important point, not because it's necessarily going to be the type of ministry we have, but what was success relative to Isaiah? Success and obedience for him was faithfulness to what God had called him to, was faithfulness to the message he'd been called to proclaim. He's not saying, go and make sure everybody believes this, Isaiah. Make sure you change their hearts and keep at it until you do. No, be faithful to the message I've given to you. Be faithful to tell others of what I've done for you and what I offer to do for them. That's important for us. Not that we don't care about the results of our ministry, but is that you have been called by God to be faithful to be obedient. That's your calling. It's important because sometimes our Christian culture gives the impression that if you only have enough faith, or if you would just instill these biblical practices into your church, then, oh, just wait for the growth that's going to come. That may be true. That may not be true. We've been called to be faithful. Jesus hammers this into the minds of the disciples in the upper room discourse. How often is he saying things to them such as, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Or as he says in chapter 15, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. It's going to be really hard, guys. They hated me, they're, they're going to hate you. I'm not telling you you've got to change people. I'm telling you you've got to be faithful to deliver to others what I have delivered unto you. That's the appreciation and maybe the mind change we need for the calling we have. We are messengers. We are heralds of not what we have done, what someone else has done and offers to do for others. Yes, that can mean that ministry can be frustrating. It can. Sometimes it doesn't go the way we want it to or wish it would or think it ought. Be faithful, God says. How many of us who are parents are not reminded of this 
all the time. At, my kids are young, so there is, amount, there is an expectation I have. I can, I can modify their behavior, can't I? I can get results. And if I don't get results, then there are consequences to bear upon our children, and I can, I can make sure the behavior is what I want it to be. I can make sure the room is clean and the food is eaten that's on the plate. I can make sure about that. But I can't change their heart. I can't make them be convicted of their sins. I can't make them desire to walk in the biblical ways and of righteousness. I can't make sure at 11 that at 32 they are going to be a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church. I hope they will. But God hasn't called me to change their hearts. He's called me to constantly disciple them and love them and share the gospel with them and catechize them and read the scriptures with them. He said, this is what I'm asking you, Andy, as a parent to do for your boys. I will change them. I will cleanse them of all unrighteousness. I'm asking you to be faithful. And that's what he's asking each and every one of us in our own lives and in the places he's called us to. Be faithful. So, what is your calling? What, where has God called you to be? To whom has he called you to go? Well, that's a question you must answer for yourself. He's called you to, to a particular city, in a particular neighborhood, at a particular church, in a particular job. You work out at a particular gym. You often go to particular stores. Those are the places he's called you to. The mission of Westminster Presbyterian Church is this. Westminster Presbyterian Church is called to make disciples in Johnson City through the worship of God, a community of believers growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ together, and ministries of outreach that seek to bring the love of Christ to our neighbor. We believe that's only an extrapolation of the, good, of the Great Commission to make disciples. Doing what? Teaching them all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you as you do it to the very end of the age. How are we seeking to do that? How are we disciples ourselves, and how are we going out and seeking to make them as God has called us to? You wonder what Isaiah thought when God told him the job description? Maybe there was a long pause, maybe he thought to himself, well, I didn't quite see it working out like that. I sure wish I'd have some more success, as it were. This is going to be difficult. Of course, he's right. Maybe he continued to think he was not adequate to the task, which, again, he was right about that. But it was his trust in God that, went him, that sent him forward to be faithful unto his calling. For the officers of Westminster Presbyterian Church, yes, there are days when you are going to feel incredibly inadequate for the task. Days when you're going to wonder if the church made a right decision in calling you into this position. I have those same thoughts sometimes too. It's okay to think upon your inadequacy. It's okay to think, perhaps I am unworthy for this, so long as... It sends you back unto the Lord. Lord, will you work great and mighty things through me? Will you make me an instrument to accomplish your purposes so that I would not get in the way? I wouldn't hold anything up. I would use you as you have called me to. Is that not exactly what God is trying to tell Moses in Exodus chapter 3? 
When when Moses comes up with all these reasons why he ought not to be the deliverer, well, I can't speak very eloquently, or the people aren't going to listen to me. And finally, at the very end, there in the middle of chapter 4, he says, you know what, just send somebody else. That's really what I've been trying to say for the last chapter and a half. I don't want to do this. Will you send someone else? God looks to Moses and said, Moses, I know what you are. I know that you're not good at this. I know that you're not an eloquent speaker. But it's not up to you. I'm I'm using you for my purposes. You're the instrument. I'm going to glorify myself through you. I know you're weak. It's okay. I'm here. I am with you. Sandy Wilson is the former pastor of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and he uh, now is, uh, serves as an interim pastor to uh, PCA churches, EPC churches, and he often does officers' retreats. Uh, churches will invite him to come and do an officers' retreat. He did one for us at First Pres Macon uh, several years ago, and he has two standard questions that he asks all staff and officers of a church. Now, it's, he elaborates on these questions, but here's his two standard questions. How's business, or he says, what's the business of your church? And so he spends some time laying out biblical principles about what the church is to be about. And, and he gets, he, it's interactive with the officers. We're, we're about this. We're about disciple-making. Any good biblical church, they're going to talk disciple-making, of course. And so they spend some time talking about what is the business of your church? And then his second question is always, well, how's business? And he doesn't mean it in, in just this success-oriented way. He's trying to get you to think, this is what you're about. Well, how's it going? Are you accomplishing the things that, that you say you want to? Are you this disciple-making and this love and care and worship, are you actually doing those things? And it's a great exercise for any group of officers to do so long as we realize that our business is being faithful unto God. Are we? Are we being faithful unto Him? And not putting the pressure on ourselves, whether it's our individual ministry or ministry as a congregation, I must change people's hearts. I wish that every sermon I ever preached was just everything that we talked about was, yes, I'm going to apply that this afternoon and forevermore. Well, no, I've I've got to trust the Holy Spirit. It uh, takes this and convicts you and changes us and me for that matter. Are we trusting in that? It's good to talk about the business of the church so long as we understand that the how's business question, yes, it's fruit, yes, it perhaps is growth, yes, it's ministry changes and so on, but the success is how faithful am I being unto God? The message that I preach, but also am I going unto people as He's asked me and called me to? Are you going, Westminster? Do you know that you've been forgiven? Do you know that a holy God loves you? Do you see the grace that you've been given? No, we cannot recreate Isaiah's vision in our midst right now. I don't think we would want to, but the consequence must be the same. God, because of what you've done for me, will you now send me to plead with others to put their faith in you? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, would you remind us that we are all on mission if we are Christians.
And Lord, that you would show us where we must go. You would help us, give us boldness to make disciples, to plead with others, to believe and to trust in Christ. Lord, yes, we ask that you would grow our church. You would help us to improve in our disciple-making. But, oh Lord, we would always be faithful to the word and to the hope that you have given us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? And then remain standing as we sing the doxology. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>